And all the people said amen. It's a beautiful song, isn't it? I love that. If you see Truett Williams, you might just speak a word of encouragement to our assistant pastor for youth ministries. I don't know if he's in this service. Are you in this service, Truett? He has so many classes, classes to take care of. He'll be in the next service, but he, we celebrate our fifth anniversary. I can't believe that Truett has been back here five years. Uh, I know it's standing still for... Uh, uh, for you, but for me, where in the world is time going? I mean, the years just pass on by. I mean, soon you and I are going to be 110 years old. Did you know that? It's just amazing. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we bring you to our very last message in the 1 Peter 3, 7 series. Someone said to me last week, I don't see how in the world you get all that out of one verse. Well, I didn't either till I started, but uh, we have already emphasized how important likewise or submission is. And uh, in verse 7, likewise refers to the submission of verse 1, a wife to her husband, and the submission of chapter 2, verse 21, of Christ to sufferings and of servants to their masters in verse 18 of chapter 2 and in verse 13 of chapter 2 to all ordinances of government. We're in submission. That is a, a given th that we will be in submission. But secondly, we have dealt with the matter of honor, giving honor to our king, honor to our wives and spouses, and honor to each other. Then we considered the matter of considerateness, a dwelling with genosine, with knowledge, learning to live with somebody and getting to know them and treating them, not on the basis of competing with them, but completing them. And then last week we talked about oneness or unity, how important it is to be one with, with our spouse and the unity of the body and how it models the unity of the son with the father. But today we come to the last phrase in that verse. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, so that, or as being heirs together of the grace of life, we're heirs, we're one, we're united, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I can't say this any plainer than that. If you have an argument with your wife, and it is unreconciled, your prayer is hindered. Now, it's just as simple as that. If you have an argument with your husband and it goes unreconciled, your prayers are hindered. But you say, what if I tried to reconcile? All right. What God does is he measures you by the attitude of your heart. If you have taken steps to reconcile and you've done all you could, then You've done all you could, and God accepts that as the whole. I think it's very important for you to understand that. Some of you have been in bad marriage relationships, and now you're separated or maybe even divorced, and you say, well, can God answer my prayer? I'm divorced. Yes, of course. Have you done all that you can do? Have you taken all the steps? When you've done all the steps, then you put it in God's hands. But what is amazing about this is that it is not just true of a marriage relationship, but if you will think about the scriptures and all the examples in scripture, you will understand that 
that is simply a, uh, an example of every relationship. In reality, all unreconciled relationships will be hindering prayer. Now, the word that is translated hinder is a fascinating word. It's the word kapto. And kapto uh, means to, to cut or to beat. And so the, to the ancients, they took that word and used it to translate the word mourn. Because in, in the ancient world, you demonstrated mourning by beating yourself or subjugating yourself in, in say, sackcloth and sitting on a pile of ashes for a while. And, uh, and in fact, in some pagan cultures, they would even cut themselves and lacerate themselves. Now, the, the philosophy behind that, you see, was that I want to show you how much I'm grieving in my heart for death or tragedy, and so I'll cut my body to show you that I can take that punishment or laceration or cutting because the grief inside is so much greater than the grief of the body. So if I cut my body, I show you how much I'm suffering inside, and that's why they beat themselves as mourning. It's an interesting set of reasoning, but I mean, I, uh, if I got to hurt on the inside, I don't want to hurt on the outside too. That's the way I'd look at it, wouldn't you? I mean, I, I'd rather just hurt on one side, amen? But, but they would punish themselves on the outside to demonstrate philosophically to all who observe how great was the pain inside of the grief then that word went on to mean to cut something in order to hinder something as uh, military rulers would put a cut in the road uh, so that uh, an advancing army or a chasing army could not catch up to them and it would raise a hindrance to them. Or you blow up a bridge, you would use a kapto. I hindered the advancing army by, by tearing down the bridge so that when the army chasing us came to that bridge, they would have to build a new bridge and they would be hindered. And that's how a kapto came to mean hinder. And that's the word hinder. So when I'm angry or put out with my wife, I am hindering prayer. But now wait a minute, I'm not going to let you silent husbands off the hook here. It's much stronger than what I've just said. Because if honor, if uh, submission honor, considerateness, and unity are the things we owe our spouses, then the opposites are what hinder prayer. The failure to give my wife honor, the failure to build her up, the failure to live with her with knowledge, to consider her. For instance, the opposite of submission is what, class? Rebellion. Don't tell me what to do. I, you know, I've been married 37, almost 37 years. It still comes up. My wife makes a simple suggestion to me, and I consider that as her henpecking me. And I don't want her telling me what to do. And sometimes I, when I'm real smart mouth, I'll say to her, do you want to play my dad next? Um, you know, <laughs> that, that's, that's, not a, that's not a good statement, is it? That's a nasty statement. I shouldn't say that. But I have said that, and then I've had to apologize. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it that way. But, but uh, yeah, I know enough to close the door, honey. I'm not five years old. But anyway, that's rebellion. The opposite of submission is rebellion. The opposite of honor is belittling, putting her down. The opposite of considerateness is selfishness, 
putting myself before I put her. The opposite of unity is strife and division. Trying to find a way to, to create just a pick as if that's my job. A copto. When I do that, or when I fail to give those four things, my prayers are hindered. Now, the first question I would ask if I were a layman sitting in the pew is why? What does treating my wife have to do with prayer? What difference does it make? You know, some years ago, they decided they would build a, uh, a developer by the name of Simpson decided he would build a nice development behind our house where Jack and Ducky live now. And we didn't fight to, to the chagrin of some other property holders in our area. We didn't fight that because we'd much rather have y'all for neighbors than some other people I could think of. I didn't even know you were going to move in there, Jack, but I'm glad you did. And, um, and so we had formerly, my children had camped out in those woods and they'd had the ring of those woods. Charles Hayes and Steve used to go down there and sleep all night till the big brown bears that came up would chase them inside. And occasionally they did. Or some other hair-raising experience would bring them back inside. And there was a beautiful white ash tree on that property that Steve and John, my two boys, used to go to and have long discussions. And they would even pray together under that white ash tree. Steve had heard stories about what Abraham did under the trees. And he thought, well, that's a good place to do spiritual business is under a tree. And so when he heard they were going to put a development there and he saw the bulldozers moving in, he went out and carved his initials in that beautiful white ash tree. And several days later, as the bulldozers got closer, only saving selected trees, he decided they were going to get his good white ash tree. And so he took the red axe, which had formerly been a scout axe, which James Sechrist had given to me, because he said every pastor of every scout troop ought to have an axe. Amen? How many of you think every preacher needs an axe? Sharpen it before you use it. That's all I got to say. So he takes my axe and goes out there and cuts, chops down that white ash tree. And he brings the section home to represent his spiritual odysseys with his brother. I mean, it sounds noble. How many even think that sounds noble? Doesn't that sound good? I was so proud of him thinking that much of his spiritual heritage, the tree where he and his brother prayed. But he left the axe on the property by the tree. And one day, the developer, Mr. Simpson, came over and said, I want to know who cut down my beautiful white ash tree. I, that was a keeper. And I've got his axe, and nobody's going to get this axe till they confess. Well, I didn't know they'd cut down the tree. And casually at supper, I say, does anybody know who cut down the beautiful white ash tree on that property? And it grew strangely quiet around the table. You know, most children don't need to confess. 
you can tell, mom and dad can tell by just watching the reaction. And I could tell those boys were guilty as sin. I knew I had solved the mystery. What's that murder she wrote, Jessica? Fle Jessica Fletcher had nothing on me. I had already solved it. And I decided I'd just wait till they fessed up. Next morning they came, Dad, we did it. And here it is, and it's out in our backyard. I said, boys, if you're going to do it, why are you so dumb as to leave the axe there? <laughs> well, I made them, I think this was good for them. Have you ever made your children do things like this? I made them go confess and made them apologize. And they got my axe back and have still got that axe. almost brought it to show it to you this morning. But I thought, well, that wouldn't make the story any richer. But they, they ecoptoed the tree. They cut it down. And the tree was a hindrance to Mr. Simpson. And because it was a hindrance to Mr. Simpson, it was a hindrance to me. And because it was a hindrance to me, I found out who did it, and it was a hindrance to those boys. And now they can look at that axe every time they see it standing up in the corner of the garage when they come home. And they know that they acopto one time with that tree, with that axe, a tree. But they had to pay for it by confession. And the relationship was, Mr. Simpson was gracious and forgave them and returned the axe. The tree, however, was cut down, hewn down, cut off, and never again grew another leaf. Now let's ask the question, why would the failure to honor, the failure to submit, the failure to be considerate, and the failure to practice unity, why would that affect my prayers? I want to make some suggestions. I want to make four suggestions to you. Strong suggestions. Listen to these carefully. The first one is this, and it applies not just to the marriage relationship, but I think to any relationship. All unreconciled relationships hinder prayer. All unreconciled relationships will hinder your prayer life. And they will hinder, obviously, your prayer life with the Father. Now, I want to give you something that is very important. Never forget this, because Christ treats a member of the body as if you're treating him. What you do to another person is what you're doing to Jesus. Don't pass that by. Now, we all think that we've reached a great level of spiritual maturity when we practice <laughs> do unto others as you would have others do unto you. But listen, it's much deeper than that. My responsibility to others is do unto others as I would do to Christ. I want to prove that. I want to show that to you in Scripture. Hold your hand here and go back to Matthew chapter 25. Now watch how Jesus, how seriously takes Jesus, Jesus takes our treatment of others in Matthew chapter 25. Now read this and, and underline it and do not forget. In the judgment of the Gentiles, in the tribulation period, Jesus will divide the nations, the Gentile nations on how they treated his people. Watch verse 33. He will set, well, verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him 
and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. This is not the judgment of the saved and the unsaved. This is a judgment of the nations in the tribulation time. And there will be sheep and goats based on their treatment of, of uh, God's people. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will say, wait a minute, Lord. When did we see you hungry and feed you or see you thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, surely I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. Now, read the rest of that class. What does it say? You did it to me. I treat my wife not just in a certain way so that she will treat me in a good way. I treat her not just because she is a sister in Christ. I treat her that way because when I am treating her, I am treating Jesus that way. Oh my, you think of the incredible implication of that. That's true of how I treat my children. It's true of how I treat my customers at business. It's true of how I treat my employers at work. It's true of how I treat my employees. And he goes on as if to emphasize this because Jesus doesn't want any mistake. He takes the same judgment, he goes on, and says in verse 42, verse 41 to 42, Depart from me, you cursed, for I was hungry and you didn't do these things to me. See, I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. And they answered him in verse 44, Lord, when do we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, and did not minister? And he said, inasmuch as you did not do it, even the sin of omission, what you ought to do for Christ, you must do for your brother. What you ought to do for somebody else, you must do as if it is being done to Jesus. And that is not inconsistent with everything else in the scripture we read. Whatsoever you do, do heartily as unto whom, class? The Lord. But you know, I'm not sure we've ever crossed the practical gap there to the practical dimension of that. When I treat Bob Long, I'm treating Jesus. When I treat Emily Rogers, I'm treating Jesus. That is of awesome significance to me. Do you understand that, Takeda? What that means? So now we come back to this. Now we understand why unreconciled relationships, things not properly given to a brother, a sister, another human being, why they hinder my prayer life. Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession. And if 
I am grieving him because I'm grieving you, then my prayer is hindered because it can't get past the aggrieved who is my intercessor and my mediator because I have offended him. The implications of that are enormous. I want you to go back into your web of friendships. Is there anyone with whom you are unreconciled? Have you taken all the steps you can take to do the reconciliation? Actually, it gives me a great sense of protection to know that Jesus is going to treat you on the basis of how you treat me. I mean, that is a word of encouragement. He's going to do for me as if you were treating him when you treat me. No wonder the Bible says, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart is the one who can enter the holy hill. Pure heart, pure heart. One other reference here, just uh, in your minds, uh, turn to Mark chapter 9. And in Mark 9, do you remember what Jesus said? He says, now look, in uh, verse 36, he took a little child, set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, verse 36, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name does what? Look at that. He receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now he adds another dimension. Not only does he measure how I treat John Umball as if I were treating Christ, but as if I were treating God. <laughs> you know, to me, this gives great insight to a lot of things in Scripture, but it explains perfectly clearly to me why First John says, if you say you love God whom you haven't seen and you hate your brother whom you have seen, you're not really loving God, you're a liar. And the reason is Jesus takes your treatment of others as treatment of him. And that is a powerful thing. Jesus lives to make intercession and I don't want to grieve him by mistreating you. Now the second thing I want you to say, to see in this. Prayer and relationships require the same spiritual qualities. What is required for a good marriage is what is required in good praying. That is why prayer is hindered when relationships are not right. Submission, honor, considerateness, unity. It reminds us that the home is the tutor for the spiritual life. I am to teach my children how to pray by how I treat their mother. I will teach my grandchildren how to pray by how I treat their father. I will, listen, the home is the tutor for the spiritual life. And if I learn how to honor in the home, and I learn how to consider in the home, and I learn how to build oneness in the home, then I will know how to pray. Isn't that true in Ephesians chapter 5? Who is the model for the husband? Christ. Who is the model for the wife? The church. What is the model for our relationship? 
Christ loving the church, doing for the church, that's it. Ephesians 5, 25, 26, and 27, that's not news to you. So Christ is modeled by the husband. The church is modeled by the church. So prayer and relationship require the same spiritual qualities of humility and consideration, of oneness and unity, of submission to the Father's will. And if we don't learn those in home relationships, how can we bring them into the prayer closet? How can we bring them to the Father when we pray? Partly that's true because God knows my motives. He knows my heart. He knows what's going on inside. He knows exactly when I am not modeling. Even if on the outside I appear to be, on the inside it's different. The third thing that we see in this passage, in this suggested or implied in this, is that every relationship has a consequence in your life. I don't know if young people have ever fully learned this, but it's a lesson we better teach. Every relationship has a consequence in your life. Relationships affect each other just as dominoes that are falling. A man woke and heard a rat-a-tat-tat noise as if somebody was working on a boiler. He went out in his bare feet and his pajamas only to discover that a woodpecker was pecking on his TV antenna. Have you ever had one of those babies peck on your, on your gutter? I mean, they can, they'll wake you up. They sound, it's rat-a-tat-tat. Sounds like an Uzi going off. And uh, this one was going on his TV antenna. And it made him mad. And he picked up a rock and threw it at the woodpecker on his TV antenna. And he missed the antenna. And it went over the house. And he heard a crash in his neighbor's window. <laughs> and he was madder yet. So he kicked the ground and forgot he didn't have his shoes on and broke his toe. I mean, one thing leads to another. You know, relationships are precisely like that. I mean, it's, it's just that way. There is no relationship you have but what others are being affected by that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and remember a very important principle with me. It is Hebrews chapter 12 and it is the principle of the bitter root. The principle of the bitter root. Now watch this in verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees... And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue what, class? Peace with all men, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble... And by this, many become defiled. I have a broken relationship. I am angry and resentful or hostile in my heart. That is a bitter root. Now the thought in me, nurtured and kept, will ultimately affect 
the writer of Hebrews says, every other relationship, because many will be defiled by that root of bitterness. So the principle of consequences out of relationships is this, that when my relationship with my spouse is not correct, it affects my relationship with God just as the bitter root principle is true. I am not to let any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, which then defiles many other people and relationships. That is why when something you do creates a problem for someone else or a problem in your mind, it makes you angry and mean towards everybody else. You know, I've watched staff members over the years and they come into staff meeting. I'm telling you, trained professionals filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with anointing, ordained, they got special papers, they've even got a housing allowance. But when they get on their high horse, it almost always is somebody pushed their button, and usually it's the wife. <laughs> but I better not say any more about that. I'll, give, I'll tip off how I, how I watch the staff. But, but there is this, this tremendous power of a resentment, of a hostility, of a grudge, of an anger towards somebody to be like a bitter root. And if you've never dealt with a bitter, bitter root, it's constantly producing fruit in your life. I love fresh lemonade. Do you like lemonade? How many like lemonade? I love fresh homemade lemonade. I love to get one of those little juices that goes round and round and digs it out of the skin and I push it all the way down to get the bioflavonoids out of the skin. I even take a knife and cut up the rind. I love lemon. You know the juice for seven, I mean the flavoring for seven up doesn't come from the meat of the lemon. It comes from the skin of the lemon. Did you know that? I learned that. You never know what you're going to learn. I learned that in a flavoring factory in St. Louis one time. They said the flavoring, the lemon flavoring doesn't come from the meat. It comes from the rind. So when I make lemonade, I, I uh, get all the way down into that rind and I take some of that rind and I cut it up in real little pieces and I drop it in the lemonade so it soaks up and it gathers the oils from the lemon. Boy, that's, and then you pour that. What I do, I take a glass and I put it in, I rinse it out inside and outside and then put it in the freezer for about 10 minutes. And then it looks like one of those root beer mugs you get at Rocola. Have you ever had a, a, a mug of root beer at Rocola with the frost and the ice on the outside? Why does root beer always taste better with ice on the outside? And so I'll get a glass and I'll freeze that water in that freezer and then pour that lemonade in there. And boy, that is delicious. In fact, I could take one right now, couldn't you? <laughs> the other day, I didn't have any lemons, but I had a can of frozen lemonade. And I made this pitcher of frozen lemonade. But I did see a lime down there, and I sliced a lime, and I squeezed it, and then I cut the rind just as if it were lemons. And little Emily, John and Vijay's little girl, one and a half comes in, wants a drink. I thought, I'll try her out on my new lime lemonade. She took one sip of that and made the most horrific face. 
And I knew then that the lime had spread throughout all that sweet frozen lemonade and made it so tarty and bitter for her that she didn't want any more and I had to change drinks. And it was a shame. I had to drink the rest of her lemonade. And it was good. But the bitter lime rind had spread and infected the whole two-quart pitcher of lemonade. And ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what happens. A hostility or an anger or a resentment against one spills out into our relationship with God. Now, the last reason that this is true, that our relationship with our spouse hinders prayer, is because of the principle of united prayer. Now, I want you to, to turn to Matthew 18, 19. And under this principle of united prayer, we, we probably don't practice this enough. Notice that in the context of offending a brother, in the context of reconciling a relationship, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, the context of personal reconciliation, he says, verse 19, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. As if Jesus is teaching the opposite of, of being unreconciled, the opposite of that is being united in prayer. And when you're united in prayer, if two of you agree, that's the power of united prayer. If two agree is touching anything, you can pray and ask what you will and it shall be done. There is power in praying together that there is never in separate prayer. I believe in private worship. I believe in a quiet time. But I believe every Christian ought to have a prayer network. You ought to have somebody you can go to and say, join me in prayer because there is power when God's people come together to pray. In the early church, chapter 1, 120 gathered together to pray. In chapter 2, they were all in one place praying when the Spirit of God came at Pentecost. In chapter 4, they were all in one accord praying in a house when Peter and John were released by the authorities. And over and over and over again, you see the early church coming together to pray to put their minds and hearts together to pray. And the implication is that when a husband and a wife are at odds with each other, they cannot pray effectively. Jack Van In said people join churches more because they want warmth than light. We like to think it's our stunning proclamation of the truth that keeps them in the pews. Sermons may get them into the church the first time. But what keeps them coming are friendships that foster inward awareness and support. And that's why Sunday school is so important. And that's why prayer networks are so important. People want more warmth than they want light. Man, I got enough light, I can't practice all I know right now. But what I, I do appreciate is 10 people praying for me, 10 people loving me, 10 people encouraging me. There is power in united prayer and power when that prayer begins with a husband and a wife who are honoring each other and honoring their children, 
who are submitting to each other and submitting to the Lord, who are considering each other and giving up selfishness, who are practicing and working at unity and setting aside strife and division. Something miraculous happens in your prayer life when that is going on. In a, a, a great book, Jean Giorno, an Italian tells about going to the uh, French Alps and meeting in 1913, he met a French shepherd by the name of Elzard Bouffier. And uh, he stayed one night with him in his little mountain cottage. And the shepherd had picked up all these acorns. He had a bag of acorns. And he counted them out. And he'd throw a bad one out. If it was bruised, he'd throw it out. Until he had 100 good acorns. And then the next day, every day, the first thing, he would rise and plant those 100 acorns. Because of my, of uh, foresting, the mountains there where Bouffier was tending his sheep were stripped. The creeks were dry. The silt was running off in the rains. And the people were leaving the villages because the ecological conditions were so poor. But every day, Bouffier would take 100 acorns and plant them. 1923, 10 years later, the Italian Giorno said he went back and there were trees beginning to grow everywhere. And there was a little more water in the streams. And Bouffier was still counting out his acorns and planting them. 1945, after World War II was over, through the war, Bouffier had continued planting acorns all over those French mountains. And the mountains were lush with trees. And the streams were full of water. And the people were coming back to the villages even in spite of the war. All because of the planting of the acorns by one little insignificant shepherd who said, I'm going to make a difference. And I am telling you folks, this world will be saved by the prayer of God's people. Lost people will be saved through the power of prayer, the planting of acorns, the systematic ongoing praying of God's people. And if you had a thousand bouffiers planting a hundred acorns every day, imagine if we had 500 people gathered together to pray for 10 requests every day. Imagine in a year there would be 3,500, 350 or 3,500 and then 35,000 prayer requests that would go up to heaven. And when they're planted in the soil of godly relationships, they bear fruit and everything around is affected by one praying family and one praying church in one city, in one state. Amen? Amen. And that's why Jesus Christ died. 
And his message is locked up until we have turned it loose and planted the seeds through prayer. I want you to stand with me. Father in heaven, I ask that you will work in our hearts to accomplish your will. If there are those who are lost and they're broken in their relationship with thee, I ask that you draw them to the Savior and convict them of their sin and their need and bring them to repentance and trust in Christ. And I pray that you will burn in our hearts a desire to treat one another as if we were relating to Jesus so that our prayers would not be hindered and we can be effectively ministering through prayer to reach this needy, lost, and blinded world. In Jesus' name, amen.